0: This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. This year is going to be Eloi Nishma Zisa Hanya Bas Rav Tzvi Hersha Levi. Uh, that's one thing. And there's also, if everybody can have in mind, for Rafua Shlema, for Rivka Bas Lea, a very, very, very chasha person in the city. One went to really big procedure yesterday, so Ritka Basleya as well. So both of those, Parshas Chukas 5781, everybody. Now, this took a little bit out of me this week, because I'll be honest with you, this is not my expertise. Geography was never my expertise. I loved geography as a little kid, but then it fell away because there's no Jewish schools that teach geography. Anywhere, I mean, maybe there is somewhere outside of America. Maybe there is, but they don't do it well. And here's what this puzzle says: Perakhal al pasuk lamed al. B'Yeshav Yisrael Amori. B'nei Yisrael had just defeated Sihon. They were about to fight O. They're living in the land of the Amori, okay, on the Eberayat on the other side of the Jordan River. B'Yishlah <laughs> Moshe l'ra'gal z'azar. So Moshe sent meraglim spies to this city called Ya'azer. And they captured the cities around it. The Benosah really means almost like literally the daughters. That refers to the, the, the little towns around that city. By And they drove out the Amori that were living in that area. Now again, it's in between two fights between the fight against Sihon and before they fought Og. Bnei Israel were living in part of the land that they had taken over after they had defeated Sichon. They took over from where Sihon was. And Og was rallying his troops to take revenge for the death of his brother, Sichon, And that's what happened. Meanwhile, Bnei Israel got to the city called Ya'azer, which would have, in the, the future, would be given to Shevet Gud drove the people out and took it over. The Medjash this is in Yud Tes, Lame says this took place after Chagah on the 23rd of Tishrei, that would have been a day or two after Sukkos, depending on what they had back then, about six weeks after the Battle of Sihon, which Chazal say happened in Elul, Rosh Chodesh Elul, up until Tesfav Elul, which is my birthday, you should remember that. So that's what ended up happening around that time. The Sefer Ayasher says that it actually happened after they defeated Og, but the Pesukim seemed to say otherwise. If you look at the Psukim, it seems pretty obvious that it happened before they, they even fought Og. But that's what the Sefer Yasha says. The Sefer Yasha says it like that. Then Nitziv says it certainly was before the War of Og. There's no question. Because Moshe Rabbeinu never wanted to fight Og. He had no desire whatsoever. He had to fight Sihon because he had to go through his land in order to get to Eretz But Og lived further up north. He didn't plan on getting on. However, Hashem wanted Og to be defeated. So when he got to Yazir, that incited og against Bnei Yisrael, he was ready to go get them. That's, he put it in his head. He is going to go get them, and that's what's going to happen. Therefore, we happened on purpose. That's the idea behind it. Now, the Sforno says the reason why this Pesach feels the need to go into detail here about where they were living and what they did. It, yes, we go through Masos, but this is not one of the, they traveled from here and went to there. This is not a masa. It seems like it just tells us that they went there. It's because Moab and Amon later claimed that B'nai Yisrael took over part of their land illegally. Yiftach tells over a history lesson. It's actually the Haftorah of this week's Parsha. The Haftorah of this week's Parsha is Yiftach tells the people of Moab and Ammon, no, that's not what happened. They didn't go into their land. They didn't touch Moab and Ammon. They took over Sihon's land and then Og's land. So the Pussik is reaffirming what Yiftach said later, that that's not what happened. That, that, that really they had gotten to a certain area, to Yazod, they had taken that over, but it never was that. The Eretzah and Mori, says the Pussik in Lamed Allah not in Eretz Amon not in Eretz Moab they never took over the line of Amon and Moab so Amon had no reason to hate them later on to come up against them later on that's how the forno says it now where is this city? where is this city? Rivari Kaplan says Yazar is a city just west of Rabas Amon you won't find that on a map nowadays I looked over everywhere Rabas Amon but he says it's the eastern border of Shevet Gud. If you look at, in Yoshua, say, Parag Yud Gimel, Pasach that's what it says. Gud built up this city later on. It became a city occupied occupied by Leviam and actually became one of the 42 Levite cities that were not exactly one of the six R-A Mikla, but if you learn Makos before, there were another 42 added on. This is one of the extra 42 in which Leviam lived there, but it wasn't just the Levite city. It wasn't just an E-Mikla. He says it's right at the border of Ammon. So if we're looking at that, that means it's Eastern Jordan. That's going to be important. But he says Eastern Jordan, technically in Og's territory. And he says because of that, says Revalier Kaplan, that's why Og wanted to fight Bnei Stroll, because they thought it was Seacombe's land. It was actually Og's land, and Og got upset at them. That's the reason why. Today... It's likely that it's near the city of Amman. Amman, Jordan is a huge area. It's sort of like if you look at New York City, it just extends and extends and extends outward right, throughout the desert. That's where Amman is right now. So likely it's around that area, and that's where they were. Then it says they were never planning on taking over the city. It never was going to happen. But the people kept making skirmishes against Bnei Yisrael. They kept coming in, grabbing stuff, and going out, coming in, going out. So Bnei Yisrael sent spies... Out to Yazir to go see what the city was like and then destroyed it completely. But the plan was never to get Yazir. Yazir was never part of the plan. They went there because they didn't have any choice. It was annoying dealing with these skirmishes coming from there, so they got rid of everybody that was around there. How could it ha- yeah. ha- be that this was, uh, I think it was as part yeah. of the OBS? So there's no question that Sihon and Og had taken over the land of the Amori, not just the Amori that were in Ertzkanan, but the Amori that were outside of Ertzkanan. So they were there. So it wasn't like Sihon and Og didn't have nations. They were just leaders of each one. So it's likely they took over the land of where the Amori were. That's what I would tell you when it comes to that, but we're not sure. And then comes the strangest part, and this threw me for a loop. And I don't really have an answer for this. I'm going to give you the best that I got over here. But here's what Targum Yonason says. Targum Yonason ben Uziel says something strange. He says, Targum Yonason is translated the word Yazir as Yazir. Because it's a city, right? If you have a city, then you're going to translate it as that city. So he says Yazir is Yazir. And there's no kasha about that whatsoever. Targum Yonason switches the word of this land. And he calls it Mechavar or machvar, mem-chaf-veiz-resh, mem chaf vav, vav resh. That's what he calls it. Now, the only reason why Targum Yonison would do that, seemingly, would be because this isn't the name of a city, it's a description of the city, and he translates it into something else. The problem is, what does machvar or machver mean? So, there are two other times where the word yazer appears in the Chumash itself. Both are in Peric Lamed Beis and Parshas Matos, where you're dividing up the land between Ruven and Gud and Chatzishev and Manasha. So they're both in Peric Lamed Beis in Parshas Matos. Okay? In both places, guess what Unculus says? He calls Yazir Yazir. And Targum Yonas and Menuzio calls it Machver. Machvar. He calls it that. That's what he calls it. I looked up a concredentia. Don't think that this was a genius move by me. The word Yazir appears. In Yoshua, Shmuel Beys, Yeshaya, Yirmia, and Divriyah Yemen. In each place, the Targum uses the word Yazer, but I'm not sure if that proves anything. Because we don't know who the Targum really is in Navi and Ksuvan. Those who know Megillah, Dav, Gimel, and Aleph, we think it might be Yonas Munozil, but we're not positive who it is exactly. So I can't tell you exactly, but they definitely translate the word Yazer as Yazer, not like Targum Yonasan in this week's Parsha and in Parsha's Matos. So obviously I looked at that and I was like, this is just strange. Why in the world would that have been? And what does that mean? So I went, to, Rabbi Torsky was here, I found it on Shabbos last week. So I went to Rabbi Tversky, we're Chaim Tursky here. Chaim Tursky said the most obvious answer in the world. It must be that it was two different times. In the times of Unculus, it was still called Yazir. Times of Yonis <clears> of <throat> they switched the name to Machver or Machvar. So it's two different places, and that's that, and it's a different name. They named it after different places. Now, that would work out well, except historically, that would be super strange. Unculus was a Talmud of Rabbi Yoshua and Rabbi Elizabeth Ben-Horkin. So I'm going to give you a quick history lesson right now, okay? We all know Hillel and Shammai. Hillel and Shammai lived about 100 years before the Basin mixture was destroyed, around the year 30 before the Common Era, around that time. They died probably at around 5 BCE. Okay, around 5 BCE. Now... After Hillel came Bais Now in Bais we don't know that many people, but we know two Talmudim for sure. We do know Rebbe Gamliel the first. That's Rebbe Gamliel has Zaken. He's called in the Mishnah. And Rebbe Shimon ben Gamliel the first. If you remember, Hillel's son's name was Shimon. Shimon's son's name was Gamliel. Gamliel's son's name was Rebbe Shimon ben Gamliel. Rebbe Shimon Gamliel's son's name was Rebbe Gamliel the second. Rebbe Gamliel's son's name was Rebbe Shimon ben Gamliel. And that's toward the end of the Tannaic period. His son was Rebbe Yudan Nasi. Okay, so that's that. Rabbi Gamliel, the first, and Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, and also Rabbi Shimon, the son of Hillel himself, were all base Hillel. But other than that, we're really lost as to what the different names are. I'll tell you two other names. One is Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai. Anybody know Rabbi Yochanan ben was famous for what? What did Rabbi Yochanan ben do? Tell me Corbin stuff. He's the guy that talked to Vespasian to give the Jews the three, the three things. The three, he got Yavna and the Chachamim, right? He got David and Melech's line and Rebbe Tzaddok. He healed Rabbi Tzaddok, right? That's the Gemara and Gittin on and daf Those are the three things that he asked. for. Right? That's Rebbe Yochanan ben Zakkai. That's what he's famous for. So we're now up to years, right? Rebbe Yochanan ben Zakkai then is around 70 of the common era because that's when the base of Mekdush was destroyed. So that's Rebbe Yochanan ben Zakkai. The other person we have is Yonason Ben Uzziel. The Gemara says in Sukkah, that Yonason Ben Uzziel was a Talmud of Hilazakim. He was the best of the best. Like the top one that, remember the bird flying over his head, burned up like that, right? That was Yonason Ben Uziol. So Yonason Ben Uzziel was the best of the best. He's that top Talmud. Rabbi Yochum guy is also awesome. He's also one of his Talmudim. But now we know when Yonason Ben Uzziel lived, he lived during the times of the of Mikdash, during that time. Unkelus is a Talmud of Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yeshua. Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yeshua were the two Talmudim who took Rabbi and ben Zakkai's fake kever out of the city so that he could get out and go somewhere. That's Rebbe Oshua and Rebbe Eliezer. Their Talmud was Onkelos. What happened with Uncleus? Onkelos was a Roman officer who was a nephew of the emperor. It's possible it's two different Onkeloses, but he lived at this time nonetheless. But he was a nephew of the emperor. He checked out the Jews. He was Megayar, and then he wrote a safer Targum Onkelos based on the, the way that Rebbe Yoshua understood the Torah. Onkelos was last. Yonas Menuziel was before him. So if the answer that Rabbi Tversky gave, that it was two different times, so two different names, that's weird. It was known as Yazir, and then they switched it to Machbar, and the next generation, they called it Yazir again? That would just be super, super weird, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be weird? I mean, unless you say, which is possibility, that Targum Yonas Nuzio wasn't really written by and Nuzio. Did you know that? There, there's a Shila. Targum Yonizim Nuzio might have been written way later. And it was based on what Yonah Zimnuzil maybe originally had as his notes and whatever it is. We don't know who wrote Tar-Yonah Zimnuzil. Rabbi Kasher and his Sefer Torah Shleima has a huge piece on this. And who actually wrote it? When was it first put down? If Yonah Zimnuzil did not write it, then we're a little confused. Because then it might be later on and maybe the name did change. So I looked it up. Is there a Mahvar anywhere? Anywhere near in Jordan itself? So there is. There is. But it's weird. It's even stranger. I gave another answer before I get to that, that I thought the target of New Zealand was actually describing the area of Yazir. In other words, not the city of Yazir, but the area around it. Maybe the area around it would be called Mahvar itself. The problem is, again, I don't know what that word means. The word Mahvar, again, I am not an expert in all this. I don't remember it from everyone. I don't remember seeing it. Somebody told me that they found it in a Gemara in Ksuvis. And I have absolutely no idea. I tried looking it up, and I couldn't find it. But maybe it's spelled differently or whatever it is. I have absolutely no idea. But, like, I I really have absolutely no idea. Marcus Jastrow, because where else do you look up if you want to really... Look up something. Don't worry. He's on my harem shelf. He's all the way up there. Okay? But Marcus Jastrow, in his dictionary, does translate, and he says, he brings down the word machvar, memchavavavresh, and he says it's from Targum Yonasan in our Parsha and in Parsha's Matos. He quotes it from there, not from the Gemara, because the man was a genius, right? And he quotes from there, and he says it's an area of perea, P-E-R-A-E-A, which is the area of Jordan that was conquered by Herod. And apparently there were mountain, mountains in the area and they're known as the Hare Mechvar in Rosh Hashanah Chav Gimel Mbez and Yuma Lamed Tesem Mbez. The Hare Mechvar. And that's what it's referring to. Maybe Yazer was the name of the city, the, the city around. Machvar was a specific place. Maybe Yazer was the area around. Maybe Mach, I don't know. But Yonas Zil is catching on to something. But Jastro says the following idea can't be. And this is what I told you. I found something on it. There is a city called Machirus. M-A-C-H-A-E-R-U-S. I have no idea how to pronounce it in Arabic, but I do have it in ancient Greek on this sheet over here. And it means Makera, which is a sword. In Hebrew, says Wikipedia, it's machvar. It's memcha vavavre. Where is this area? It's a fortified hilltop palace located in Jordan, 16 miles southeast of the mouth of the Jordan River on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. I've never been to Jordan before. Has anybody here been to Jordan? Yeah, you've been to Jordan before. Where do you go? Do you go to Oman? The airport, okay, that doesn't count. No, I mean, like, if you go in. I, I, so I know somebody, somebody who learns Navi with us, right, David Weintraub. So he's been there, and he's been to Arun what his kever, what they think is horahor. So he's been to that area, which they call Aaron's kever, you know, in that area. So he, say, he knows the little area around there. But I, I asked him if he went to this area called Macheros. He said, no, but he'd heard of it. And what he, this guy's been to Machu Picchu. So I assume he actually meant it when he said he's heard of it before. Apparently, there's a place around there. According to Josephus Flavius... It's the location of the imprisonment and execution of John the Baptist, Baruch Hashem, right? That's what ended up happening, and that's where it became famous, because that's where he ended up be, be, being executed, Baruch Hashem. We'll say that each time. The fortress that Mecheris was, origi- it was, it was originally built by the Hashmonite Hashmoni king, Alexander Jannaeus, who lived 104 B.C. to 78 B.C., in about the year 90 BC, it served an important st- strategic position. Its high rocky vantage point was difficult to access, and invasions from the east could be easily spotted from there. It was also in line of sight of other Herodian, hasmonean citadels, so other fortresses could be signaled of trouble appeared on the horizon. Nevertheless, it seems to have been destroyed by Pompey's general Gabinius in the year 57 BC, but later rebuilt by Herod the Great in 30 BC to use the military base to safeguard his territories east of the Jordan. Upon the death of Her- Herod the Great, Sorry, the ches is just there for me. The fortress was passed on to his son, Herod Antipas, who ruled from 4 BC until 39 BC was CE, common era. It was during that time, in the beginning of the first century CE, that John the Baptist was imprisoned and beheaded at Macharis Bar HaShem. And that's what happened over there. Which means, if we're dealing with the right times then Yonas Ben-Uziel should have been well aware of this area. Granted, he wasn't a king, but he was living during the Hashemiteh period. If this fortress was built at that area and called Machvar, it makes sense that Yonas ben Uzziel would have known about it and called it Mahvar. Perhaps if it was already destroyed in some time, I don't know, 57 BC, even though it was rebuilt in 30 Common Era, it could be that Jonas ben Uzziel knew the area as Machiris, But Umculus, who lived a little bit later in around 60 of the Common Era, was not aware of it, and therefore just called it Yazer. My only problem with this is, as I said before, Revali Kaplan had said that it's on the eastern border of Jordan, not the western border of Jordan. This would have been right by the Jordan River, which makes it a little bit off. Is that enough geography for everybody today? Is that pretty good? What? It would have been southeast of the Jordan, but only 16 miles off. It's not so far off. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much the width of Israel anyway, if we take away, you know, pre-1967. But, like, I, I, it's just weird. So I tried, I tried, I tried finding a real city for this. I don't think I have it. If anybody has any other information on this, I'd love to hear it. But I, I know that it's geography. Rashi says that the spies themselves are the ones that captured the towns outside of Yazar itself. They said to themselves, we're not going to be like those spies from before. The spies before, they refused to fight. They wouldn't take over Eretz They saw the giants and they ran away. They were scared. We're going to do it ourselves, Even even though there were only a few spies says Rashi. Even though there were only a few spies, they trusted the power of Moshe Rabbeinu's tefillah and they took over the city themselves. Isn't that amazing? And that's why we mention it here. Why do we have to mention that the spies were here in the first place? Because they were the ones who conquered a city on their own. Just like Shimon and Levi went into Shechem and destroyed the entire city, these spies took over the entire city on their own because they trusted Akadosh Baruch Hu, according to the Medrash and the Medrash Hanchum, and that's what Rashi is quoting. The Sif Zekhamim says, it could be learned from the words of the Pusik, it says the word kidu. they captured it in plural, well later on it says in Lush and Yachid. that means Bnei Yisrael as a whole drove out the rest of the people but these spies were the ones who actually captured it, they did everything on their own do you see that, that's absolutely unbelievable, it sounds that that's what ended up happening over here, now I want you to think about this over here, they said we're not going to do what the spies did, we're going to take over the cities ourselves that's a brand new understanding. Did anybody know that? Did anybody know that the spies could have taken over Eretz Canaan on their own had they only tried to do so? Again, the spies are saying right now, we're not going to do what they did. We're going to fight and we're going to capture it, capture it on our own. But the, the first spies didn't fight. But if they would have, they might have been successful. Had the 12 Meraglim gone into Eretz-Kanon and fought the giants on their own without anybody else, they could have won a massive war against 31 kings, the giants of Hebron, and all the other people there. Had they gone in to fight, they would have won. They didn't. So therefore, what ended up happening happened, and the Meraglim happened, etc. It's an unreal Rashi. I'm not reading this wrong. There's a diak in Rashi, and it's a pure diak. It's, a, it's an eye opening, Rashi, what the Maraglum could have done. So that's even more so why Akadah who was so angry. I told you to go in and to take it, to grab it. Maybe even Moshe Rabbeinu hinted to it. He does sort of hint to it in Parsh's Devarim when he tells them what, what happened by the Maraglan. He hints, the Maraglan could have done it, and they didn't. They didn't do it, so therefore they're gone. And it looks even better according to the Balaturim. The Balaturim says the wording of the Pusig is actually Vayirash, Vav Yud Yud Rashin, but we pronounce it as Vayoresh, that they were driven out. You know why? Because they never really drove them out. They walked into the city, right, all, with their weapons ready to go, and the entire city packed out. They were so scared, they all ran away. They ran out on their own. The spies didn't even really do anything. They just walked in. Had the Maraglam done the same thing, instead of being scared of the giants and feeling like grasshoppers and ants in their eyes, had they gone in straight back with their swords ready to go, they would have defeated them. Look, there's a famous line, the Rebbe Hanu Wasserman quotes from the Chavetz Chaim, and it's in the Sefer Kovitz Mamaram that the Chavetz Chaim had said that when the Bolshevik Revolution happened, and the Russians were making rules against Jewish etc. and they were trying to rid themselves of religion. And probably also, I would assume, at a time of Stalin, but the Chafetz Chaim was not around exactly during that time. But during that Bolshevik revolution, and people were going up, and then Yanis, Yanus, I don't remember what it is, the wording, Uh, Yanvusim, Yanusim, I forget whatever it is, the people are there in the 1910s, 1920s. He said, if I had the strength, at the time he was 75, maybe 80 years old, he said, if I had the strength, I would get up, with a bunch of Yeshiva Bachrim, and we would destroy the army of Russia. I, that's what he said. Rebbe Chanouwassim heard him say it. He said, "But I don't have the strength. If somebody would get up and do it, like the like the did, then they would be successful." Nobody wanted to do it. Nobody got up. Nobody did it, and Russia became Russia. With literally, both ways, Hebrew and English it works out, right? It became the way that it became because nobody was willing to get up with them, I, I, That's the Chavetz Chaim. That's in 1920, 1923, whatever it was. He passed away in 1933. So at around, sometime at around that time, that's what the Chavetz Chaim is saying. That's what these guys could have done, and that's what these two did. That Yelash Shachar wonders how they knew. How would they know that they're going to be successful with Moshe Rebbe and his tefillahs? Where did they see something like this happening before? He said, they, it doesn't even say they were Boteach and Hashem. They trusted in Moshe's tefillahs that his tefillahs were going to work. So I guess the only other time that Moshe Rabbeinu davened and they won was by a mulik. Even by Sichon and Og, we don't see Moshe Rabbeinu Davening, but we see it by Amalek. Years earlier, 39 years earlier, they saw Moshe Rabbeinu Daven with his hands up, and every time his hands were up, they won. And every time his hands went down, they were losing, etc. So they knew that Moshe Rabbeinu's filas were there. Maybe they knew that that was going to be there for them, and they went inside. But it's strange. It's unbelievably strange. I would have thought that a Amalek was a total aberration because there were of children who had a certain schluss. I don't know. I have no idea. There's something strange about all this, but apparently it's like that. But now you get to the obvious question. Didn't the Meraglim just happen, I mean, 38 and a half years ago? But why would you send spies again? Why would you send spies? Like, I know that, you know, it worked out in the end, and it was fine. But this wording of, Vayishlach Moshe Leragil Es Yazar, doesn't that bother you? All of a sudden, there's, there's Meraglim? Shlach Korach Chukas. I know for them it's 38 years. But for us, it's two weeks. It's two weeks. Did, did nobody, nobody bothered by this? How could that be? Rashi doesn't say anything. I would think that somebody would get up there and say, wait, bad move. We did this once before. It did not work out well. And in fact, it added 38 and a half years to our, to our t- time in the mid Don't do it. Don't send any spies. And really, obviously, this question is stronger. You know what Joshua did? It's the first thing he did when he got to Eretz Canaan, when he got to the other side of the Jordan River, what's the first thing he did? He sent spies to go check out Erechah. What was he thinking? Again, why would you send out spies? Now you could answer, Yoshua learned it from Moshe, because Moshe just did it by yazer. Which leads again to the question, what was Moshe thinking? Why would he send out spies? See, Barbanel says, and it's an obvious answer. This time around, he didn't tell anyone. He didn't make a public display. He didn't send the spies in the eyes of everybody. He didn't make a whole announcement of what they were going to do. Nobody knew except him and the spies and likely Yoshua. No one else was involved, because if you're going to send spies, the last thing you want is people to know about it, especially the people around you. Why did they need to know? They don't need to know. If you're going to have spies around, you just say, like, are there spies? Maybe, I don't know, it doesn't make a difference. That's what you do. You be secretive about it. That's the obvious idea. So that's why by Yoshua later on, when he sent on the Meraglim, it says, Cheresh. I'm sorry. He sent them out privately, secretly, without telling anyone, and that's the exact same thing that Moshe Rabbeinu did over here. He didn't send them out with pomp and fanfare like he did by the Meraglim. He sent them out and just said, "Guys, go check it out. Just do it. Come back to me. Tell me what's going on. That's it." They didn't go back to the people and say, "You wouldn't believe the giants." They didn't do anything. They went right back to Moshe Rabbeinu and said, "This is what we saw. This is what it is, and that's all they needed to do." The Mascula David, the parish and Rashi, says it was done on purpose. They could be mitaking what the Meraglim did originally. And the spies obviously messed this up. Here, they can take care of it. The spies had to have specific kavanah, specific intention to be mitaking that sin. And they would have to be willing to be moster Nefesh to fight, which is exactly what they did. They were moster Nefesh. They were willing to die by fighting which the Meraglim originally were not willing to do. The Shach. Says this happened all the time. They continued to spy out lands that they were trying to conquer. They didn't want to rely on miracles, even after they had defeated Sichon like that. Without any problems whatsoever, they wanted to show that they were a normal nation so that the 31 kings in Canaan wouldn't be scared of them. So that they walked in, right, Bnei Yisroel would walk in and everybody would be like, oh, they're just yet another nation. And they wouldn't think to fight them. Then Bnei Yisroel would come in and destroy them completely. They went through the motions of sending out spies. According to this answer, he did it on purpose. He wanted them to think that we're normal regularly fighting when really it was a Baruch who fighting for them the entire time. And that's why it says Vayilkidu, he says in plural, and then Vayoresh in singular. Any one of them could have done this without much effort. It would have been done automatically because the Baruch was fighting for them like the Baal Shem Tov, uh, the Baal Aturim said. The Midrash Lekach Tov said Moshe did this to show Yoshua what he has to do. I, I, the Nitzif has a whole piece on this, but this is from the Midrash Lekach Tov. He says, the transition from Moshe to Yoshua was Torah Shebech Sav to Torah Shebaal Peh. And it's a major difference. The Nitzif has, literally, he goes through all of Sefer Devarim with this theme of Torah Shebechstav to Torah Shebal pe, how it switches from one to the other. And here's how he says it. He says, you can't, Yeshua is not a Moshe Rabbeinu. Every word out of Moshe Rabbeinu's mouth was darshaned. Everybody took, like when he said something, he said mutter. They were like, oh, why is it mutter? Why is it Mutter? If he said one extra word, they sat there for hours trying to figure out what in the world is going on here. How in the world did he say that? How could he say that? And they darshaned it every single day. Yoshua wasn't like that. Yoshua was as close as you can get to a Moshe Rabbeinu, but he wasn't as great. Simply put, he was the moon to Moshe Rabbeinu's son, he was a reflection. And the moon is just a reflection. It's nothing more than that. It's just a reflection. Says the Midrash Lek Toven. It's a beautiful piece, right? He's trying to show him, when you go in, you can't rely on miracles anymore. Yes, when you cross the Jordan River, we all know what happened, right? Cross the Jordan River, the river is going to start going up. And it's going to not split. That's not... What happened? But the river is going to go up and the whole land dried out. And they were able to walk onto dry land. Yes, that's going to happen. It's going to be awesome. When you go into and you're going to fight, and Eureka, the walls are going to come down after blowing a chauffeur walking around it seven times. That's miraculous. But you cannot rely on miracles. The second war they fought against the eye, they went in thinking they'll be fine. They lost. Yair Beminasha was killed, and they had to go in with a strategy, an awesome strategy. But they had to use strategy from that point on, because they can't rely on miracles. That's what he's teaching Yoshua. He's doing it on purpose to tell him, yes, by me, I never should have sent spies in the first place. But you, you're going to need spies. You're going to need this for the future. You are going to need that over there. Miam Luiz has a beautiful piece here. He says that most revenue that one could send spies for different reasons. A king could send spies to evaluate a country: is it worth fighting or not worth fighting? Is this something that we should go through? If the land is poor, right, and the people there don't have that much, you're not going to profit from it. Then it's much probably better to leave the land alone. If it's a strong city, the the amount of losses might be huge. Then it's probably better not to be able to do it whatsoever. On the other hand, spies can also be sent for strategy. How to fight the city? Should we go up this way, that way? What's the best way in? What's the best way out? What kind of walls do they have? What kind of stuff do they have around? That's that. Moshe Rabbeinu's first spies were of the first sort. He was telling them, tell us if it's worth it. But he never meant to say, tell us if it's worth it because maybe we won't do it. It's tell us if it's worth it, thinking it probably is worth it if God wants us to go there and you'll come back and tell us an awesome report. right? That's what he assumed it was going to be. At the end, the, they were trying, I guess you could say, people thought that he meant the other way around, whether it's worth it or not. They went in, they said it doesn't look like it's that worth it, so they came out and that was it. These spies are not that. These spies were simply put to be able to know how to fight. And that, you were allowed to do no matter what. That's always going to be motor and always going to be okay. That's exactly what they did over here. Moshe and Yoshua did the exact same thing. Not whether to fight or not, but how to fight. Do you guys know who the spies were? Can you take a guess? same two as by Yoshua, Kalev and Pinchas, the two, according to Targumism, were Kalev and Pinchas, the same two spies sent by Yoshua later, who went to Erechol and were miraculously saved by Rachov, sent out of her house, etc., it's, um, but what shocks me by this is, I get why Yoshua sent Kalev and Pinchas, why wouldn't Moshe send Yoshua, do you get what I'm saying? I get why Yoshua is sending in Kalev and Pinchas, because he can't send himself, he's the leader. But Moshe, why wouldn't you send Yoshua? Yoshua and Kalev should be metaking what they did the first time around, right? Shouldn't they be doing that? Wouldn't that make sense? Why not send Yoshua? I don't have a real answer for it. I assume that he didn't want to send them because he already knew that Yoshua was going to take over for him. The problem with that is, he doesn't know about that until Parshas Pinchas, which Chukas Balak Pinchas is two weeks from now. So I don't know if that's maybe out of order, or maybe he knew something. I don't know. I have absolutely no idea. Maybe Yosha was super old by now. He was. He was over 70. So maybe he was just too old to go. But that would be weird, because Kalev was 80. So I'm not sure. I really don't have an answer for it. Yeah, take Maybe he wasn't as, as, as expendable. As expendable? Yeah, I don't want to say it that way, because it was his brother-in-law, Kalev, and Pentecost, his <laughs> brother's grandson. It sounds super mean and super evil, right? But I hear you. <laughs> That's expendable. Right? But that, that, I hear it. it. It's just weird. It is strange. The Mamele says that these two were sent because Kali remained faithful without any help from Moshe up into the first time around by the spies themselves. Right? Yoshua needed a yud to ensure his success. I'm not sure if he's trying to say whatever it is. And he thought the people when they wouldn't listen to his port, report. Pinchas was sent because what did he do with Zimri and Kuzbi? He killed them. Again, that doesn't happen yet. Right? Again, that's at the end of Parsha's Bullock, which is next week's Parsha, which is strange. I have absolutely no idea. I, I, I don't know. Maybe. I, 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 just, I can't tell you. I, can't, I, I don't have a great answer for it. My assumption is is that Yoshua could not have been sent for whatever reason. He knew that, and that's that. De barbanel says it doesn't matter who they were. Even if there were, they, they were tremendous Sadiqim who not only did exactly what Moshe Benu told them to do, but even fought on their own, not keeping themselves hidden at all. They pulled the cities out, the men out of the cities, fought them in the fields by themselves, destroyed them, leaving only the women and the children in the homes, making it easier to conquer later. That's what they ended up doing, and that shows the greatness of these people. No matter who they were, they were awesome people who did exactly what they needed to do to fight, and they won. That's the point, says the Abarbanel, but we don't need to know it. I don't know how much time we have. Okay, we only have four minutes. The Barabasada asked such a simple question. If they did send spies, and it makes sense to send spies, why did they not spy out any other land other than Yazir? That was it? Yazir and then Yoriko, and that's it? Why not send out? I mean, they must have gone in other places. They went to 40 different places, 42 different places in their travels. Did they never spy out land beforehand? they never do it? This is the only one? So he asked, he asked why is this the only one here? He says, no, you're missing it. Of course they sent spies to every land before they got there. They sent spies to Hora Gidgo. They sent, sent spies to Hora Hor. They sent spies to every single Masa that they went to. Every single one had spies. This is the only place where the city was captured by the spies themselves. Isn't that awesome? Right? In every other place, the spies went. They came back. They told them what to do, and they went there. This is the only place where the spies went, took over everybody, killed everyone, took over the city, and then came back and said, it's done. And they're like, what do you mean? And they're like, it's done. What do you mean it's done? We killed them all. You're just two guys. And Pinchas is like, do you know me? (laughs) Like, I'm good. You don't have to worry about me. Yeah, what's up? Is it the only time Moshe like, prayed for them? It can't be. It can't be. It can't be. It must be that he davened at some other time. But you're right, because Rashi said right, that he was davening for them the whole time, and he, they knew that. It can't be, though. It just doesn't make it—why would it be that way? But I, I can't answer it. Maybe. Maybe that, that is—maybe that's all it was over there. Now, that answers the question we answered earlier also. Why wasn't Yoshua sent on this mission? It's possible that he was sent to other cities along with the other great tzaddikim. But he wasn't part of this one. Because Hashem, Moshe maybe was sending certain spies in this direction, certain spies in that direction, certain spies in that direction, checking out all the cities around. After all, if you're going to spy out land, you don't just send two people and that's it, right? You send two guys that way, two guys that way, two guys that way. That way you don't have the same people doing everything. That also was a problem when sending out the Meraglim and Eretz Canaan. There was 12 people doing everything all at once. Yeshua was spying out somewhere, but he was somewhere else. He was with someone else somewhere else. That guy didn't get lucky enough to be mentioned in the Torah. Kalib and Pinchas were mentioned as what happened to them because they took over the city. Yoshua was somewhere else doing something else because that was the normal thing to do. Maybe that's that. Midrash Tanchuma gives the most boring answer ever. It's unfortunate. It just says Yazir was the last city to be captured. So it was like, so that's why we mention it. Cause it was like, banded with Yazir and that's that. And that was just but like, know, I'm sorry? What about all, all? He didn't, they technically didn't take it over. They took it over in war and not yeah. in capturing cities. So, technically, this is the last one they ended up doing, which stinks. In the end, I'll tell you that the Magin Avrom, the Magin of Trisk, he says the following, that Eretz Israel is called Eretz because it's ruts. What does ruts mean? What does it mean to ruts? To run. It's fruits. They ripen and they get better. They grow so quickly. That's what it's called, Eretz, where the fruits grow so quickly. And Mori is a Lushen of Amira. Amira and Debor, where they used to speak words of Torah and do mitzvos, and they only argued L'shem Shamayim, hopefully, right, with the best of intentions. With the skus of the land, says the Trist, nothing to do with Pshat, with the skus of the land, which works supernaturally, and the skus of the people who are learning supernaturally, they knew they would always be successful in everything they did. It was from that point on where they felt comfortable where they were and who they were as a people that they began seeing success in all of their endeavors and everything they did. yes. Midian was an aberration later on. Something happened with Midian, right? With the woman of Midian, etc. But they started seeing successes of people and what they were going to do for the rest of their lives because of what happened right here. It says in this is the beginning of where B'nai Israel became a nation as one, where by Yoresh S. Ha'amori, they were able to drive out alone the Amori as if they were just one person altogether. All right, guys, we'll stop with that. Have a great shot.